And we are live! Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Strong Tea. I'm Vicky. And I'm Katie. And if you haven't joined us before, why not? You're missing out on a whole world of intriguing subjects, learning from people's experience, from their lives. And that's all about what we do here at Strong Tea. We take topics that some people consider taboo and we learn more about them by inviting some fascinating and inspiring guests to come and talk to us about their stories and what they have been through. If you haven't checked out our back catalogue, please do. There's something for everyone there. And today is no exception with having an inspirational and very special guest with us. But before we introduce Bella, we always find out what everyone's drinking. So Bella, what are you drinking today? Well, I'm drinking Yorkshire Brew, nice and strong, and my favourite. But I, I must admit, my husband's Welsh, so he'll have Welsh brew. Oh, which is that? actually nice as well. That's Welsh brew. Yeah, I've not you heard of that. Brew. Have you not? Ah, yeah. well, uh, we, we get it when we're in Wales. It's got the dragon on and everything, and it's oh. called Welsh brew. So, very nice. Did this not is, know that. This is one we have. Oh, not there tried you go. Yeah, we but need we, to but out. we must say you're now a firm favourite because you're drinking Yorkshire and yeah. that. I love Yorkshire tea. Absolute yeah. cracker. We've had some people on here drinking PG tips. We're like. <laughs> get out yeah <laughs> we really we should not judge people we should, yeah we shouldn't chuck our guests out on the nature of the, the tea that yeah. they drink <laughs> yeah um i tried pg tips i must admit i'm not a fan no no, no. i used to drink tetley but then i think it's the older i've got you know when your tastes develop and you just yeah. need a bit, a bit stronger a bit sturdier yeah yeah definitely. what are you drinking today katie uh, today I've gone for a herbal tea um, because nice. I've already had my caffeine today and I've gone for a Shibui um, mm. African winter, which is a oh. spiced chocolate tea um, and it's got cocoa beans, chicory root, ginger, rubbish, cinnamon, cardamom pods and black pepper. It's the one that Neil says smells a bit like the inside of a sauna, not sweaty, but just like, you know, the wood, you know, hot yeah. wood smell. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. It's interesting. It's nice. It's filling the room with scent as well. Nice. What have you gone for? I'm going for my caffeine hit. So I'm sorry to break the tea tradition, but I've gone for (laughs) coffee. I know. But because I don't just do ordinary coffee, it's sweet (laughs) vanilla with a vanilla shot. So it was vanilla flavoured to start with and you've added extra vanilla. Yeah, that's how I roll. Nice. Nice. Any side of vanilla with that? Maybe vanilla stick to... That would just be over the top, Katie. Well, I had, with my spiced chocolate tea, I had a Freddo chaser, so. Freddo chaser. (laughs) Brilliant. Absolutely. Other chocolate bars are available. They're just not as good. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I'm going to dive right in and introduce our fantastic guest. Now, I'm not going to steal our guest's thunder because she has got one hell of a story um, to talk us through. But today we have the wonderful Bella Good here. Um, she's based in Hereford. She's a um, business owner. She's an author. And she is pioneering the way in trying to educate people about a certain mental health um, disorder that we're going to talk all about now. So Bella, in your own words, right from the start, can you tell us your story? Yes, of course. Um, well, 
I'm going back now to a very young age. Um, I realized what, when I was very young, um, I didn't kind of feel quite right. That sounds weird. But what I mean is, you know, I had feelings of wanting to escape and, and not be here. Um, and just, you know, you know, just those are the things that I thought. Um, and I can pinpoint the beginning of it because um, I asked my mum when we moved house. So I had that to go from, really, the time that we moved house, which meant I could pinpoint when I started to have these feelings. I had really vivid nightmares. and They were horrendous. Um, I used to wake up screaming they were that bad. We had some curtains in the house, and I always remember them because they were red with black on. And um, the black always change shapes in the night. You know, you kind of see something and you think, what's that? Um, that? That's what I did when I was very young, maybe four years old. So my vivid imagination took that to being wolves on the um, on the curtains. And so I was petrified being in there. I also had a fireplace in my bedroom. And so I was convinced that the wolves were going to come down the fireplace. Oh, that's awful. Yeah, it was. Um, it wasn't very good. But I, I do remember those times. Um, once, when I was probably a similar age, I decided I was going to pack a suitcase and go away. So I found a little bag, popped a couple of things in it, and went down to the bottom of the garden where I hid. So I was kind of thinking, you know, I want, I want to get away from what was whatever was going on in my head. But I was too young, really, to realise what what all of these things were. Um, and, that, you know, that sort of situation continued throughout my my childhood, um, vivid dreams, um, sometimes feeling I wanted to escape, um, feelings of not quite understand. Well, I didn't understand what was going on. I, I had this brain that seemed to flip from one thing to another very quickly. Um, what else can I tell you about that? So, um yeah, I'm just trying to think about that period of my life. Well, when you were uh, when we had our initial chat, you talked us through your teenage years and how yeah. that was quite harrowing um, yeah. for you. So tell us a little bit about what you experienced because that's obviously going through puberty and so many more hormones racing. Yes, it's got yeah. to be a really big time. Yeah. Well, um, I think I was um, basically uh, a bit of a rebel. That would be the word to use. I was a bit of a rebel through my teens and uh, probably caused my parents quite a lot of upset. But um, I can remember very clearly sitting on a windowsill edge once and just thinking, you know, look, I wonder what it'd be like if I jumped, which is a, a really horrible thing to experience because at that point I didn't really care. And um, I just had a flower and I was taking the petals off and in my head I was going, jump don't jump, jump, don't jump. And um, obviously I didn't jump, but, you know, that that was what was going through my head at the time. So I had all these mixed feelings, and you're, you're quite right, you know, the, the hormones and the emotions are all crashing around as well, just to make things a bit more difficult. Um, so the teen years were, were very difficult for me, and um, I used to, this is awful, but I used to cut myself as well. Um, so I think that's that's just something that a lot of people go through that that situation of wanting to feel something. So you end up 
doing something like cutting um, and I can remember going to school with bandage on my arm and trying to hide it from other people. And that continued, that, that sort of scenario continued for quite a while. Probably I can pinpoint the last time was 2005. Wow. The reason I can pinpoint that is, is it was, um, it was the, I think it was the 5th of May, 2005. And it was when my granddad died and um, I self-harmed. And I kind of made a decision after that because uh, it was on my leg, which was more visible, really, if, if you think about it. it. It was it was deeper and it was at the top of my leg, which kind of ruins wearing a bikini a bit, you know, but I still do, obviously. But um, I'm, I'm aware that it's there. Um, it's quite a, a, a long scar. So I think after that, I just made a decision. Right. When you get these feelings, you're going to have to do something else. You, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's no good doing what I was doing. Can you talk about what those feelings were and those compulsions? Because self-harming is is something, as you said, that a lot of people try and hide from the world. Mm. So it's a very private pain. Can you talk a bit more about, you know, the thoughts and the feelings you had during that time? Yeah. Um, Well, I... From what I remember, I just wanted to take out how I was feeling on me, on myself, which um, seems really crazy. But I'd have these periods of almost hating myself, you know, not liking myself very much, not really knowing why, but I just didn't like myself. And um, if, I used to want to hurt myself, basically. I just felt like getting something and just, re- you know, feeling some pain and hurting myself. In terms of your um, teenage years, you talked when we spoke before about your self-destructive behaviour and obviously self-harm was a big part of that. But you said you started experimenting with a lot of drink and drugs. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, I I can't really remember the age that I started, but um, I think between the age of 14 and 15, I found alcohol. and I used to go into a pub and I was with older people. So they would, they'd obviously be able to buy a drink for me. I couldn't buy my own because I was 14, 15. Um, so we used to pretend it was something else, but really the, the alcohol would be there in the glass. And I, I liked that feeling because it just took everything else away from me. It was that feeling of um, being out of control because you've got the alcohol, it numbs everything and you don't really know what you're doing. So you're out of control and I really liked that feeling which sounds quite strange but I like to feel like that I didn't want to feel me like me um if that makes sense I wanted to escape from reality and and not feel like I felt it was to stop me feeling how I felt and that kind of worked yeah and, and we speak to a lot of an awful lot of people who talk to us about their journeys with drink and drugs and say that you know, that escapism element and, you know, there's always a catalyst for it. And it's that trying to escape from sure. the thing that, that brings them into it. So, yeah. you know, the next stage in your life was when you had uh, your first child and that kind of changed things for you, didn't it? Yeah, it did. Because up until then, I've been sort of dabbling with all sorts of things, really. Um, you know, obviously, alcohol was a big part of it. But, you know, I dabbled with various different substances as well. And um, so when I had my my daughter, I was I was 18 when I got pregnant. And um, I just held her when she was born and saw this beautiful little, little baby and realized how responsible I was going to be. 
I was, you know, I was an adult then and I was going to be responsible for another life. And I just made a decision there and then that everything had to stop. And I had to, you know, put these feelings on one side and um, and be as good a mum as I could be. Mm. I mean, I think it's obviously incredibly brave to to make that decision because obviously overcoming addiction is is a huge thing, isn't it? I mean, yeah. What what happened next? What was the sort of next stage in your life? Because obviously now you've got you've got a child, yeah, and you're still trying to battle those feelings with yeah. the addictions, but also your mental health as well. So where did you go next? Well. I I think I probably had a bit of a period of depression, but not really understanding at the time what what depression was. Um, you know, I, I kind of uh, made a decision that I was going to do the best I could. So when she was six months old, I enrolled at college and I did a BTEC in finance. And um, I used to, I remember I used to get on a bus from where I lived and get into town and then hand the baby six months old over to my mum and get on a bus to go up to the college. And um, now that kind of steadied me, made me study for something, which I always think is good to try and get your mind onto something else. Um, so although I was still, I was still drinking at weekends and things like that, you know, um, going out and um, partying as it were, but it wasn't as big a problem then because I was basically responsible and obviously going to college, trying to get something that I could work from and, and be able to get a home. Um, I didn't want to stay in the council flat that I was in particularly, and I wanted to be able to get something for me and her. You were so young. Yeah. Just, I mean, it's it's mind-blowing. The journey so far, even up to that point, you had been through so much mentally and physically and as you were saying about it's good to have purpose and you yeah. know, had an element of control mm -hmm. you know you were still a child yourself you yeah were still so young. If, if you look at it now you know I, I've got a 22 year old and you know when I remember her growing up and I look at it and I think yeah I was you know I was really young but um I did manage to get through that I did manage to get my BTEC in finance as well um so I felt that I'd achieved something and a few years later I, I got a job in a building society um, and in those days you would get a, a cheaper mortgage, you get a staff rate mortgage. So I was able to save up and um, buy my, my flat or a flat. Mm -hmm. um, it was only one bedroom um, so I did share a bedroom but it was the beginning of a, you know, a, a start to being on the property ladder. You, there's obviously a, a massive um, building of resilience that you had sure. to have. At the time, did you know how much you had achieved? Because looking back now, even though we're, we're only at the beginning of your incredible story, you can already see that there is so much resilience that you've you've built. At the time, were you aware? No, no. I mean, I am somebody that goes out there and, and I will try my absolute best. So... Looking back now, yes, I can see that, you know, against all the odds, really, I, I went to, you know, I went to college and I got something from that that I was then able to use um, to, to get a job. So I didn't just sit in the flat or even though sometimes I felt like it, I, I have got a big drive inside me that keeps going. Um, and at the time, I didn't think it was a big deal, really. I just it was just my life and, and how I, I lived my life.
So then you found yourself in a in another relationship and you had your second child and you had quite a rough time after that one, didn't you? Yeah, I had a really bad episode of postnatal depression. I think it was more of a psychosis. Um, it was it was horrendous and it, it was just like this massive black cloud and, you know, was over me. And I never I never had those feelings of not wanting the baby. And I couldn't really understand that it was postnatal depression because what I'd read about it was almost in a way that you almost reject the baby. I didn't. I just didn't want anyone else anywhere near or anywhere around me. And I just felt out. I suppose looking back, I felt out of control because I wasn't in control of when he was crying. Um, You know, you're not, are you? This baby will cry whenever it wants to cry. Um, But I never had any bad feelings about you know about the baby it was me more than anything and I I couldn't tell you now how it happened it was just this black cloud just descended on me um and I couldn't function I just could not function obviously I could feed my baby son and and look after him but as a person I felt I couldn't function properly at all I completely I completely relate to that and I think it's incredibly misleading with um postnatal depression where sure. they talk so significantly about you you having these feelings of not wanting your child because mm-hmm. when Freddie was born I I I just I couldn't stop crying and I was mm-hmm. like I it's not I I don't not want him I just yeah. I don't, and I had this bubble and I was just I just want to protect him I just want it to be just me and him yeah. it was so misleading because I'm like well it's not postnatal depression because it's not what it says in the book mm. but you know it is it is a yeah it's a dark dark place to be so it I is. don't it's I horrendous don't... I mean it got so bad that I was hospitalized um oh, I mean I don't think a great deal went on in the hospital apart from them trying to put me on some medication for um depression and and just I mean I just felt safe I know it sounds crazy, but I felt safe because I was in a place where everything was done you had your meals brought you know your meals were done um and I I felt really sort of scared then about the prospect of coming out of the hospital because again I'd have to deal with all these influences outside of you know my control yeah that was gonna that's neatly gone into the question that I was going to ask you is was there that fear with everything you've been through up to this point with um you know the self-harming and everything that element of control not being able to control how you're feeling and what you're thinking those you know intrusive thoughts those intrusive voices Mm. and obviously you felt safe in the hospital but was there a fear about going outside and not having the ability to take control of all of this yeah yeah I mean I I was um I mean you don't you're sort of not there and just suddenly you're out I mean I went on day like a day release trip but I remember um pulling up outside the house and seeing my daughter there and um not because of her but I just couldn't get out of the car and go in I just I couldn't do it and um I I went back to the hospital and you know it was a really horrible experience because that fear was overwhelming the fear of, of going out from the security I suppose where you felt things were you know there's always someone there um and so yeah I, fe- I felt really out of control of my feelings and everything yeah, I'm sure a lot of people can um, relate to that feeling of being out of control because it's, mm. it's frightening, isn't it? Like you mm. said. Um, 
so you 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 moved on with your life and a few years later you uh got with in another relationship and this was quite a bad one wasn't it yeah yeah um very destructive um yeah it was a really difficult time I mean I have an idea now how people feel when they're going through domestic abuse um it doesn't have to be physical it can be mental um and when it's mental you can't see what's going on but you know at one point I thought I was going crazy because um I was being told one thing and seeing another thing and none of it none of it fitted and I felt that I was losing my mind um obviously you know the partner well I got married and um things were not easy things were very difficult and he was quite you know quite difficult to live with as well I I didn't realize that he was um drinking as much as he did um because he used to hide it from me um I presume looking back um he must have been using some sort of drugs as well um so yeah it was it was a really difficult time and obviously I had three children then so it was very hard for them as well. Give context. How old were you? Oh gosh, um, I was I think I was thirty two when I had my third child. Mm. Around about thirty two, um, yeah. And I did have a, a slight amount of um, postnatal depression again, but it wasn't to the point that I has, had to go into hospital. Um, but yeah, again, it reared its head and um, I, I struggled quite a lot at the beginning with postnatal depression and it's it's a really hard thing to do. Um, my husband ha- had had three previous children, three children from a previous marriage. So there were times when there were five, six children at the house at weekends. And, you know, I, I really struggled with that because, again, I just wanted to be with the baby. I just wanted to wrap her up in cotton wool. Um, my eldest daughter was obviously older, so she was going off to um, college or work or whatever she was doing. Um, and, yeah, it was it was really difficult. But like I say, luckily, I didn't end up in hospital. How did this impact you, the relationships with your family and your friends? Because... You know, that must have felt with someone who's mentally abusing you and everything else around you that's kind of out of your control, it must have felt really isolating. Yeah, yeah, it was really isolating. And you don't want to tell people. You you don't want to sort of let on to other people what you're going through, really, because, so you know, I think sometimes we blame ourselves as well. And I, I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I was blaming myself for a lot of it. You know, I'm not good enough oh, what's, you know, what's wrong with me? I'm obviously not good enough. And that was a recurrent theme through my, um, through my life is I'm not, I'm not good enough. I'm, you know, I I would take all of that on myself rather than see that it could be the situation I was in. We, uh, we know from the chat that we had with you initially um, that this relationship uh took a nasty turn when this guy ended up going to prison sure tell us what happened during that time what it was like trying to deal with that and then also what happened when he got out well it was really difficult um obviously I think my daughter was around about one year old and um things had happened and he ended up being prosecuted and going to prison 
And during that time, I ended up with people knocking on the door, actually, um, saying that things were owed and that I owed money. Well, you know, I didn't think I'd, I owed any money at all. And it was it was things that he'd done, things that he'd taken out. Um, and it was it was difficult. It was a very difficult time, um, especially as I had the children there. And I was at that time I was working as a financial advisor. So I was really worried that um, things would have repercussions on me but luckily they didn't so um I managed to get through that time but um yeah years yeah he he had a sentence of seven years so I think he served three and a half four years um and when he came out I I had him back I said right okay you can have somewhere to stay because he needed to have um an address to go to so I had him back and that was really difficult. Um, and then he had an idea of, of a business. He was always into business ventures. So he asked if I would get him on my credit card um, as a second account holder so that he could withdraw 500 pounds to start up whatever it was he was going to do. And so me being me, I said, yes, of course, you know, anything really to help out. Um, and then it was about two weeks later that I realized I hadn't had my usual credit card statement through. And I was wondering why I hadn't had it. So at work, I went on the computer and had a look and found that there was, now I can't remember the exact figure, but around about £5,000 on my credit card. And I hadn't put it on there. And I had no idea. And I could see that there were cash withdrawals on there. And it wasn't me that had done that. So because I was a financial advisor, I knew that you could do a credit check. So I did a credit check and found, I think it was another four credit cards in my name that I knew nothing about, oh absolutely nothing. So um, I packed his stuff, confronted him and said to him, you know, you, you've obviously done this. Um, you've obviously used the card that I gave you in, in good faith. You've, you've, you know, abused that card. Um, and taken out as much money as you could but you've also applied for cards in my name and so I, I had to tell the um, parole board that that's what had happened and he went back into prison to, to finish his sentence and um, I contacted the credit cards and luckily because it was classed as fraud I didn't have to pay all of the money but I did have to pay the one that was in my name and that took me years to pay off that's so yeah that's crazy. That must have added so much stress onto what you were already experiencing with your mental health and looking yeah. at three children and trying to work. And I, I can't even imagine. So I'm, what amazes me is the next step that you took when you started working with Step Change because of sure. your own experience. So tell us about that. Yeah, well, it was actually called Christians Against Poverty. So it wasn't it wasn't Step Change, but it was the same type of organization um yeah well what happened was I I had a good friend and she was going through an awful time herself she struggled with depression and she was diagnosed with cancer and she had six children and the um the lender for the the house that she had was trying to repossess the property so because of my knowledge that I got as a financial advisor I did an income and expenditure with her and then actually went as her advocate to court and we managed to get that um you know not quashed but put on hold um so 
that was one of the reasons why I wanted to get into helping other people. And so I started work for Christians Against Poverty, going out in the community and helping families that were in debt. So I decreased my hours that I was working as a financial advisor. I, I think I ended up doing two days a week. And then the rest of the time I worked for, it, it was churches together within Hereford. It was a group of churches that put the money up to start the debt centre. And that's what I was doing. Wow. That's, that's, that's an inspirational move after what you'd experienced yourself. You know, I can quite imagine people going, oh, my God, I don't want to deal with anything to do with money. Run away, run away. So yeah. that's, you know, take my hat off to you there. So tell us tell us about the, the next happy bit. Tell us about when you met your husband. My husband. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I obviously carried on working for Christians Against Poverty for quite some time. I think it was about nine, ten years. Um and uh, I'd, I'd been on my own for quite a while at that point. And, you know, I, I was sort of quite happy, actually, on my own, apart from periods of depression that would hit me now and again. Um, and one, one day, my um, pastor of the church I went to, he'd arranged for his good friend to come and preach at the church. And so he did. And I met him. And I found out that he'd had um, a previous marriage and children. And um, we got chatting and think one thing went to another and we realised that we wanted to get married. Um, so it was a very, very quick relationship. You know, we went from meeting each other, going out together to deciding that we wanted to spend our lives together. So um, that was a really happy part of my life. Um, we got together um, the pastor at my church was the one that married us and it was yeah it was great really good and we're still together now I hasten to ask <laughs> quickly I'm glad that you've I'm glad that you've talked about him because obviously he's a pivotal part in this next piece of the story which is really why we're here today to talk about your diagnosis now so tell us yeah. what happened next tell us about how you got your diagnosis and just sort of what what happened over these last few years? Yeah, well, um, I, I'd always struggled with periods of depression, but I'd also had periods of elation. Um, and I, I was, you know, I just thought it was being super happy, um, being, you know, centre of attention and super happy and bubbly. And I think my personality is quite bubbly anyway, um, even though I, I struggle with depression. So, um what what happened was I hadn't stopped drinking. I still enjoyed a nice drink. My husband doesn't drink. If he does, it was very, very rare that he would, would have a drink, really. Um, and I started to notice that my behaviour wasn't great when I was drinking because I would black out. So it seemed there was something in me that couldn't just take one drink. Um, and I became aware of that. Many times tried not to drink. But it was really difficult, you know, um, anybody with addiction will realize that. But at the time, I didn't realize it was addiction. I just thought I liked to drink. Um, I've lost track of where I was now. So, yeah. So, sorry. No, that's what I was going to. I was just going to say where you were, but you were just talking about how the drink was becoming to the point where you realized there was a bit more of a problem. Yeah. And I think I realized it because my husband didn't drink. So it became more obvious to me. And, 
you know, and I used to start sort of hiding what I was doing, thinking no one would realize that I was having the extra drink. But of course they did, because you can't hide it. You can't you can't hide that from anybody. Um, I, I can remember him looking after me as well and protecting me when I was like that. Um, he was very good. He never said to me, right, you need to stop drinking because he he knew that if he did, if he said that, I'd probably do the opposite, me being me. Um, so, yeah, it was, you know, he, he was very supportive and, you know, looked after me in, in those periods when I was um, drinking to excess more than I should. I was functioning, though. I, I still went to work. I, I didn't drink in the day. It was something that I, I chose to do at home in the evening. Um, or when I went out or a party or something like that I just couldn't put that glass down it was it was like I wanted to pick it up and I just wanted to carry on and I think again I was looking for to escape my feelings and not really understand where my feelings were coming from even yeah so it was difficult so how did that lead on to the next step with your diagnosis yeah well I went to, because I was struggling with these periods of being high and being low, I went to a, um, a consultation through my GP with a psychiatrist. And um, and basically he said to me, we can't diagnose anything while you're drinking because it kind of masks those, what's happening with you. And I can understand that now. But at the time, I was I just wanted to know what was wrong with me. I felt there was something significantly wrong with me. Um, and like I say, I hit a, a dead end really. And I, and he definitely did say to me, you know, we're not going to be able to give you a diagnosis while you're drinking. So that gave me the added, um, thing to, to actually decide that I needed to stop. And then I went on a bit of a journey trying to stop. So it's not as easy as people think if it's something that's, if you've got an addiction. So I went to AA um, and I found AA was really good because it's a group of people from all walks of life, all struggling with the same thing. And you feel that, you know, other people's stories, you, you can resonate with them. Um, now, I went to AA, um, I'm trying to think when it was now, five and a half years ago. And I've never touched a drink since that first day I went to AA. I've never even had a sip. Wow. That's amazing. How do you feel? Uh, it made me feel really good because I mean at the beginning it was it was tough but um now you know I I, I couldn't contemplate having a, a drink because I know that you know it's it's just going to lead back down that rocky road again mm. um so I finally managed to get a diagnosis with my mental health last year so even though that was five years after giving up alcohol um, it was a journey trying to get a diagnosis. I went to the GP, um, you know, back and forwards, back and forwards. I was given antidepressants um, and it was a really difficult time. It culminated last year in, in a kind of episode, I call it an episode of mania, where I was completely out of control and um, I was just completely on a high so driving, driving fast, um, not that I should say that, but, you know, I did drive with less care perhaps than I normally would have done. Um, and feeling that I wanted to drive, whereas if I've got depression, I don't want to drive anywhere. So everything that I'd had with the depression was the opposite with the elation. And it was 
absolutely the opposite. It wasn't, oh, just a little bit. It was huge. Um, so I was confident, whereas I've been not confident when I was depressed. Just every single thing was um, completely the opposite. So I got a diagnosis, uh, finally, of bipolar. And I think bipolar, getting that diagnosis maybe has helped me um, understand my mental health more. I don't just blame myself for how I'm feeling, but it's really tough, really, really hard because I'm still getting the, the feelings of hypermania and I'm still getting depression. So far, the medication that I'm on hasn't really sorted out the problem. I know since September I've been on medication and they keep tweaking it, but it's really not working the way I want it to work. I want a period of stability. That's what I want. I want to feel just completely on a level. Now, I know you'll get ups and downs in normal life anyway. If you haven't got bipolar, you're going to have ups and downs. But these ups and downs are just huge. They're much different to an average up and down in a, in in your life. When you are, so before your diagnosis, when you were really high function, you were feeling confident, everything was great. Was there something internally going, well, this is fine. This is great. There's, there's no need to worry. It's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You just, yeah. You just think this is, this is great. I'm, I'm getting everything done. I'm achieving everything. I don't think you're really aware at the time of what it is. And it's not until you go down that you realize that period you had was, was, it was a period of elation. It definitely was. I mean, I'd be up all night. I, I wouldn't sleep. I'd literally, and I'd be so creative during that time as well and making business plans, um, you know, spending money on business ideas. Um, in fact, looking back, some of them were probably very irrational. But at the time, you can't stop because it's what your brain's doing. Your brain is actually doing this and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Same as, when you're, same as when you're on the depression side of it. It's nothing you can do. People will say, oh, snap out of it. And, um, you know, you should be able to snap out of it. No way can you snap out of it. It's our minds and the way they work. That it's, it's just there, isn't it? It's how our minds deal with things. And there isn't really anything you can do. You've obviously <laughs> talked a lot about your journey throughout your life with um the issues that you've had with depression postnatal depression postpartum psychosis things like that are you frustrated that this bipolar diagnosis has been missed for so long you know and that it's taken so long for someone to stand up and say do you know what this is what it is and now you're like right now I know what it is I can deal with it do you know, it's interesting you should say that because I was reading some facts and figures the other day and apparently it, for, for some people, um, it can take up to 10 years to get a diagnosis, which is, you know, if you start, if you're starting your journey trying to find out what's wrong with you, to then wait 10 years, it's just incredible, isn't it? And I suppose thinking about it, mine would have taken a long time as well because half the time, you know, you're, you're trying to see GPs and you, you don't get the same GP, do you, nowadays? You, you sort of have different GPs dealing with things. Um, I think if you had the same GP and they were seeing you and maybe it would be better. But the way things are, we, we don't get that now. We get whoever whoever's there, don't we, when we, we contact our GP surgery. Seems like a really stupid system. 
yeah you don't have that continuity because like you say it probably would have been picked up a lot sooner wouldn't it yeah because you know they get to know you don't they and they get to know your ins and outs and um yet they haven't got to read through a screen of everything so i think it's really sad that it takes such a long time for a, for diagnosis because I don't want to put a label on it. I don't want to sort of say, right, this is it. I'm bipolar, so I can I can do whatever. Um, having a label, it might not help some people, but for me, it made me put sense. It made me look back at periods of my life and realise that actually during that period, maybe I was on a bipolar high and I was taking risks and... Um, doing things I wouldn't normally do. Um, so I think it has helped me. I just want to get well. I don't want to feel like this. Um, I accept I feel like this, but I don't want to feel like this. And I had, I think when we spoke before, I was feeling great. I was on a, a really good, um, you know, good period at that point. And I was feeling very positive. So I would add that today I've, I've literally had 10 days of being really depressed and um, there isn't anything that you can do about that I mean apart from trying to get the medication tweaked at some you know trying to I might have to try a different medication and I'm really I'm really quite scared about trying something different mm. you no know, it's it is scary to think well what what if I take this and it's it's not going to work or what if I take this and it's going to have side effects I mean the next yeah. the next the next thing for me now is um, something called lithium, and that's got a really bad reputation. You know, people have heard of lithium, mm. and um, for me, I've researched it, I've looked it up, um, I know what the side effects could be, and I, I really don't want it because one of the side effects that can happen is tremors in your hands, and for my job, I need my hands. So, mm. you know, I can't, I can't have shaky hands. Um, it's just not possible and I'm self-employed I have a business so it would just be impossible for me to go on to that yeah firstly thank you so much for you know your honesty and mm. you know you're coming through the other end of a particularly bad period and thank you for joining us on the back of that because yeah. I mean that's yeah don't know about you Katie but I'm quite honored that you've Yes. seen it through and joined us today and yeah. the one of the things that we are really passionate about on strong tea is that brutal honesty and rawness so people can learn from it mm. and I think given the context of where you have been what you've been through and your constant desire to help others to not let others be in the same situation you've done the same now with your bipolar diagnosis where you've actually written a book yeah Tell us more about that and the, the motivation behind doing that. Well, funny enough, um, it was my dad. He He's always said to me, you've got a story to tell. Um, he said, you you know, you should write. And I and I was I always used to say to him, oh, you know, yes, yes, yes. But think that I would never be able to write. Um, so I, I don't really know how it happened. I think it was I'd been up for nights and, you know, I hadn't slept. And I felt I was feeling really creative. And I thought, right, come on, you're going to put pen to paper and just talk about this. And um, I didn't put pen to paper. I used the computer. So um, <laughs> I, I can type pretty fast. So I, I just got the computer out. And, and yeah, I just went back to my story, really. And I've, I've called it um, 
living with bipolar, my story. And, you know, it will it will be published. It will come out. It's not ready to be published just yet because we're trying to figure out what the front design will be for the book. Um, and then it will be checked again and then hopefully it will be uh, published. Well, it will be published. But um, I just wrote and wrote and wrote for nights. You know, the nights I couldn't sleep, I thought, right, I've got to do something creative here. And I've been very open in the in the book as well. And, you know, people say, don't they, perhaps too open? Because that's me. I am a very open person. So I just put everything down and how I've been feeling and my struggles and um, my journey with AA, my journey with postnatal depression. It's all there. And there's quite a bit we haven't talked about today, but that's, you know, that's all part of the journey. And I just hope that somebody else reading it, it might make sense to them. They might be, you know, they might be um, what worried and concerned about what they're going through. Maybe they can, maybe it's going to help. Maybe somebody will read it and they think, you know, oh, I can get help now. Or, do you know, actually saying that, I went to a, meeting not long ago and um an AA meeting and uh we share in the meetings that's what it's all about um and of course there's privacy we don't say who we see there so what's said in the the rooms stays in the rooms but one of the girls came up to me afterwards and she said it was me sharing that made her go to the GP and made her look for a diagnosis and try and put two mm -hmm. and two together to figure out why she was going through something so I know what I said helped and that that's so important just to think that maybe I'm going to give somebody else um, a bit of hope because I have, I have achieved, even though I struggle like mad with bipolar, I have managed to achieve. And you know, that, that's something. Absolutely. And it's what we see so many times on this podcast with the incredible people that we meet. It's that, like Vicky said earlier, the resilience, but it's also the desire to try and, help others and that mm. feeling of not wanting other people to be alone mm. you, you've mentioned quite a few times about the church yes and um the church that you go to I'm just reaching into your experience with your faith has your faith helped you in this you know with your mental health and your situations you've been in throughout the years yeah without a doubt um yeah I mean I can remember um when my son was a few months old, that was the first time I, I went to a church. I'd been to a church as a child, obviously, you know, we now and again, Christmases and Easter, they say, don't they? Um, and I had gone to a Catholic secondary school, although I'm not Catholic. So some of that seemed a bit alien to me, but it made me look into it a bit more. And then, like I say, with my son, um, with the postnatal depression, I was I was looking for something and I went into a church, listened to what they were saying, and it really resonated with me. I mean, the sermon that day was about having all these bad black thoughts and things that we'd done wrong and us sort of hurting ourselves because of what we'd done wrong. And it made me realise that, you know, people that go to church aren't aren't just good people. You know, then they're, they're not everyone has got a struggle. We've all got things that we've done wrong. And um, so it made me look into it quite a bit. And then meeting my husband as well. Well, he's a pastor of a church, so um, he has a great faith. And I think if I hadn't had my faith as well, then I don't think I'd be here now. Wow. 
it's incredible it is it's uh it's inspiring it really is mm. it really is um for me i think what i'm really interested about is you're leaving quite a legacy you know you've written your book you're speaking on podcasts like this and you're helping to destigmatize and shine a light on bipolar mm. um as well as your other experiences because as you said you know people resonate with something that you've been through and it will change them and help them with regards to your your kids your children what's happening with with them have you told them everything that's happened to you in your past and how has that influenced them and how are they as people yeah um I think I have been brutally honest at times um you know we don't hide anything we talk about all sorts of things and um I've given my eldest daughter the manuscript to read through um, and so there, there is nothing there that I'm hiding. You know, it's it's raw and it's brutal and it's the way I what happened to me. Um, there might be bits that they remember what, what, you know, probably a couple of periods of my life they will remember. Um, but some of it they probably wouldn't have a clue. So I, I am being very open and honest about it. And they're all fine. They're all doing well in what they've chosen to do with their lives. And we have a good relationship. That relationship hasn't broken down, which is great, you know. For those people listening to this podcast who, because my cousin has bipolar disorder and she's she's tried so many times to explain to me and she actually got me to watch a programme um, that was on, I think it was Channel 4 um, quite a few years ago and it was called Modern Love. And it was an mm-hmm. episode of that with Anne Hathaway and it, depicted this half an hour episode what it was like for someone to live with bipolar and I finally sat back and went wow okay now I understand it so for people listening to this that don't really get it and they just think oh you know you're a bit up and you're a bit down can you explain what it's like because when we talked before you said those low periods are so debilitating and I don't think people know enough about how this works so can you just talk about that yeah I mean basically the the depression side of it if I've got an episode of depression it just completely affects every part of my life um so I don't go out I don't want to go out anywhere I stop seeing friends I um avoid family um a lot of it is avoidance I won't go into a supermarket because I have a fear of too many people around me um, I sleep all the time. I just want to put my head under the duvet and hide away from the world. Um, it's very hard to be creative when you're feeling like that. And um, yeah, it's just, it's horrendous. It really is debilitating. It it just really affects my life. It's not just a feeling down day like some people have. It is, it's really, really, you, you're gripped in the depths of it. It's like being in a black hole and you can't get out and mm-hmm. unfortunately there is no answer you just everyone just says you have to live through it and know that there will be a better day and I'm reaching for that at the moment I'm really struggling at the moment and I'm just saying to myself there will be a better day because you know there'll be a better day but it's hard to see it really hard to see it and when I'm feeling really good um 
again, you know, I'm creative. I, I do things that are creative. I stay up most of the night. Um, I'm busy. My house is immaculate. It's really clean, whereas it's um, it's not immaculate when I'm depressed because I can't do anything. Washing's up to date. Emails are up to date. You know, I've just got this surge of energy, um, which I try and throw into the right things. Mm -hmm. So when I was growing up, I probably would have thrown it into the wrong things. Whereas now, you know, it's going to be doing the laundry and doing emails and getting up to date with everything, which I know I'm not going to be up to date with when I'm depressed. Sounds like you've had to go through quite a process of reconciliation with yourself in that it's it's okay not to do that. It's mm. okay not to do that. Just go go easy because, as you said, yeah. this is uncontrollable. You you know there'll be better days, but you you just can't feel it. So mm. let's let's stop the pressure. Let's go easy. Yeah. What would you? Because obviously, when from from your own experience, when you're in it, it's debilitating. What advice would you give to other people who are supporting someone with bipolar? What can they do to better support people? That's a really good question. I mean, I was just thinking then that on Bipolar UK, there's quite a lot of support. Um, there is a mood tracker on there that you can download onto your phone. So you, you can actually track your moods. Um, if you're not quite sure um, what mood you're in, it's got a description. Um, it's really good uh, to put that onto um, onto your phone. And, and I've done that. I used to keep a, a written diary and put in there how I was feeling, but this mood track is really good, but they have got advice and help on there as well. Um, so it, it's a really good website, Bipolar UK. And there's an awful lot on there that you can access as somebody that's suffering with bipolar disorder and also family and friends. Um, advice to family and friends is really difficult because you're probably going to be hiding away and not want to see people, but perhaps it's to tell people why it's not them you know, explain, it's not that I don't want to see you, it's that I'm not able to see you at the moment and I'll see you when I've got a better a better day. It sounds, I mean, for people on the outside looking in, it just sounds incomprehensible to understand that and to, and I always said I never understood depression. Until I got mm. postnatal depression, I was like, now I understand it. Now mm. I get it. And I know it's slightly different to, depression but you know it's I think unless you're living it it's very very hard to understand it and I think the fact that you are putting your time and effort in to writing your book and coming on podcasts like this and talking about your experience it is only going to help educate others so that so that we're more open to talk about these things mm. so thank you mm. um one thing we do with all our guests is we offer them what's called the final sip so it's your opportunity to take the floor and uh, leave us with whatever you want, uh, whatever you want our listeners to hear. It might be a bit of advice. It might be just something that you want to spread the word out with bipolar. Um, whatever you whatever you want to talk about, the floor is yours. <laughs> right. OK, there's there's so much isn't there to, to talk about. But um, I think. For me, it's it's taking the help that's out there. People don't want to sometimes don't want to take the help that's out there and there is there is help even though you you probably can't understand it at the time so I mentioned Bipolar UK I mean it's a good resource 
but not only that you know we most of us are on facebook aren't we and there there's a bipolar uk facebook group and on there everyone is talking you know uh family members go on there to ask questions but mainly i would say it's people struggling with bipolar and just to hear someone else say yeah we we can understand you yes we're feeling like that and everyone can sort of help each other to support each other with the same illness i think i've been offered to join a group in september which will be by uh, bipolar disorder sufferers getting together having a group session i think that will be good i think you know for other people to understand um that they're going through the same thing mm. and get help to a certain degree i say that to a certain degree because this is for life now you know I've been told that once you've diagnosed or once you've had an episode, it's going to be there. And it's it really isn't easy. I may have made it sound quite easy at times, but it's it isn't. It's really hard. Oh, you're on mute. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> no, that was me. I was on mute. <laughs> have you found comfort? Because obviously you mentioned Bipolar UK and uh, I guess just a very, very final question, even though we've done final sips. Sorry, Katie. Um, there's obviously comfort in talking to other people. Yeah. And would that be your first step? Yeah. 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 Don't struggle alone. Reach out. If you're feeling, you know, if you're feeling really depressed, um, and it's, it's just to reach out and tell somebody and talk to somebody. Talking does help. I mean, it's a, you know, talk therapy, isn't it? It does help. And it, it would enable you not to feel so lonely with this by speaking out and trying to find someone you can talk to. There is help online. I know a lot of people want to be face to face, but nowadays it's so hard to get GP appointments. Um, there, There is a lot of help online as well. And there are books out there. So you can always read yours. Very soon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, Bella, we, we cannot thank you enough. And we will put all those links that you mentioned on the bio as well on our website. Yeah. But we cannot thank you enough for joining us today um, and being so open. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, especially as it's not a great day for me. I was worried a bit that I was going to struggle, but um, it's good to talk. You, you've yeah and and to be honest we learn something every episode and this has been no different you have taught us a lot and mm. yeah I can't thank you enough thank Please you let us know when your book comes out and we'll post yes. it on our social yes, media I pages will, I will do thank you very much no worries and thank listeners you. If you've enjoyed what you hear, you can support us. Please go to our website and go to the supporters page where you can buy us a coffee or a tea, as long as it's Yorkshire, just saying. Or a Welsh brew, because I wouldn't mind trying that. Or a Welsh brew, we'll have to try that. Yeah. So without further ado, it's goodbye from her. Oh, it's goodbye from me. <laughs> yeah, I think that works. <laughs> Thanks we'll for joining us. Soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.